Today on Against the Grain. Following September 11, 2001, the United States has seemed bent on a course of endless war. But David Fine reminds us that constant war making isn't new, that the United States has been at war almost every year since its founding. He joins me to discuss the evolution of American imperial power and the network of extraterritorial bases that have been a key element of U.S. hegemony. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Wars have been a constant for the United States since its very inception, and so many of those wars, especially in the past century, have been abetted by a vast web of foreign bases spanning the globe. In the United States of War, a global history of America's endless conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State, David Vine enumerates the hundreds of conflicts that the U.S. has been engaged in from its founding. He argues that foreign bases have not only been a means to an end, that is, to facilitate military actions around the world, but also have made new wars and military excursions more likely and alluring to those in power. Vine is professor of anthropology at American University, and his other books include Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. David, rather than asking you during what periods the U.S. has been at war, it's probably easier for me to ask you what years has it not been at war? Yes, it is notable that now more than a quarter of the country has literally no memory of a time when the United States has not been at war because the United States, as you said, has been at war continually since 2001. The periods when the United States has not been in a war or some other form of combat since independence number about 11 days in U.S. history. So we're talking 95% of the years in U.S. history, the U.S. military has been fighting in some form of war or other combat. The years when we could consider uh, the United States in some state of peace, although even that is debatable, are at the end of the 19th century. And then at the beginning of the 1930s, when President Roosevelt was in office and brought an end to the long series of wars and occupations in Latin America. And then a few years at the end of the 1970s under President Carter. But again, uh, by many accounts, the United States has, has never been at peace given other forms of uh, intervention and, and war. You argue that the war that the U.S. has engaged in predates it even as uh, an established nation. So I wonder if you could remind us of the violence that was a prerequisite for the establishment of the European colonies in North America. Yes, that, that is an, an important part of the, the picture, an important part of the, the history and context. And that's why I take my history back to at least the arrival of Columbus and in the Americas and specifically on a second voyage at Guantanamo Bay, ironically enough. Uh, although some scholars, and I, I agree with them uh, and, and do this in, in my book, take the, the history of violence and war back to Europe itself. That it's important to point out that the imperial competition between European empires that took place in the Americas uh, was preceded by centuries of, of warfare and horrific violence in Europe. But I think it's important to, to see the long history of U.S. wars that, that really date to independence uh, as, as being shaped by the imperial competition and a succession of, of European empires in the Americas. So we see U.S. leaders explicitly modeling the United States after independence, after the European empires and the colonization that, that the United States, uh, the U.S. government, carried out across the North American continent followed colonization practices and processes of specifically Britain, France, uh, and Spain. What ideologies underwrote the conquest of the lands of indigenous people in the establishment and preceding the establishment of the United States? I think we have to look at racism first and foremost, that racism became a primary justification for colonization. Uh, imperialism 
itself also uh, provided a kind of uh, justification for conquests, for uh, war. Um, but uh, the two really are, are, are so deeply intertwined, we can't, uh, we can't separate them. Uh, but uh, sort of racist imperial spirit, uh, again, shaped many of the actions of, of U.S. leaders. We're talking about, of course, white, male, elite, wealthy leaders, uh, certainly at the beginning of, of U.S. history after independence. Uh, and this provided uh, justification, a rationale, uh, and motivation for conquest uh, across the North American continent and eventually beyond North America. Uh, and in the process, of course, uh, took the lives of millions of Native American peoples, uh, dispossessing and displacing them from the, their lands and resulting in, in untold other suffering. Your book also touches on the history, which I think eludes a lot of Americans, uh, the history of the United States invading its neighbors, both Canada and Mexico. Can you remind us of that history? In total, I'm able to document how the U.S. military has uh, invaded and gone to war with or been involved in some form of combat with more than 135 other nations and peoples. Uh, and this includes uh, 11 invasions of Canada and at least 10 invasions of Mexico, uh, dating uh, to the late 18th century, the 19th century, and in the case of Mexico, uh, in the early 20th century as well. Can you remind us what the 1823 Monroe Doctrine was and what its ideological underpinnings were? So the Monroe Doctrine was a doctrine early in the history of the United States uh, promulgated by President Monroe, basically saying that the European empire should uh, stay out of the Americas. Now, in practice, the European empires pretty much ignored uh, the Monroe Doctrine, but it was a, a declaration of intent of a kind uh, to say that the rising U.S. empire would be the dominant empire in the Americas and uh, the European empire should be warned. Uh, it was then used as, as justification uh, for uh, long series of, of invasions of Latin American neighbors and uh, frequently long-term occupation of, of those countries, um, countries in, in, in Central America, especially in the Caribbean, uh, that uh, we see picking up steam in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, but the, we can see with the Monroe Doctrine, the roots of, of those invasions of, of Latin America uh, is really residing much earlier in, in US history. Along with that sort of political and ideological justification of U.S. dominance, what role did religion play and a certain kind of messianic notion of the place of the United States in the world? Yeah, I pointed to imperialism and racism. We do need to pay attention to the importance of nationalism and specifically a kind of Christian, often messianic, evangelical form of U.S. American nationalism and ideas of, of U.S. supremacy, ultimately. Um, this is not just simply patriotism, a kind of pride in, in one's country, but a, a real belief, a growing belief over the course of the 19th century in particular and into the 20th and 21st centuries, a belief that the United States is superior to other, other nations and U.S. American citizens are superior to others. When people talk about American exceptionalism, really often that is something of a euphemism for a kind of U.S. supremacy. And uh, the, the language of manifest destiny, which arises in the middle of the, the 19th century, captures uh, that belief in a kind of God-given right of the United States to expand and conquer, uh, to dispossess other peoples, Native American peoples in particular, indigenous Americans. Uh, and uh, to do so in a way that was not only blessed by God, but, but ultimately fated, destined. Uh, and that, I think, captures much of the spirit of, of Christian, U.S. American supremacist uh, ideology that, that fueled the colonization and, and expansion of the United States. 
So in the late 19th century, the U.S. as a power expanded into the Pacific and into the Atlantic. Can you tell us who Alfred Mahan was and how his ideas uh, were central to that expansion? Alfred Mahan was uh, uh, both a naval officer and uh, a historian who gained considerable acclaim among not just uh, people in the Navy, but, but politicians in the United States and actually in, in other parts of the world as well. He studied the imperial competition between Britain and France and came to a number of conclusions and basically became a, a key strategist, uh, not just for the Navy, but, but for all of the U.S. empire, uh, specifically arguing for the creation of foreign uh, military bases, military bases and coaling stations that could maintain uh, ultimately a global navy, that to have a navy uh, in the era of coal, uh, you needed stations where you could refuel. And this uh, theory and, and strategy of Mahan's uh, came to shape U.S. Navy and U.S. government policy, U.S. imperial policy, uh, and shaped the, the expansion of the United States beyond North America to uh, islands, especially uh, around the world, beginning in the, in the Pacific, but, but not exclusively in the Pacific. Right, and that expansion included the U.S.'s war with Spain and the conquering of the Philippines. Now, as you note in the book, those conflagrations are seen often by historians as anomalous, as a sort of anomalous episode of U.S. aggression in a period where that aggression was not pronounced. You, of course, are arguing something quite different, that that sort of aggression is absolutely part and parcel of the history of the United States. Why was the defeat of Spain and the conquering of the Philippines important for the U.S. as a, an imperial power? Indeed, I... I argue that this was not a period of uh, an anomalous period or a period where the United States, as some historians put it, sort of stumbled into empire. But this war with Spain and the conquest of, of territories, including the Philippines, uh, Guam by negotiation, uh, Puerto Rico, and, and on a de facto basis, Cuba, this was part of a long process of colonial expansion that the United States entered into shortly after independence, that this is not a, a new period, but is really the, the next step in uh, conquest, uh, that the only difference between the conquest across the, the Western, what is now the United States, and uh, these islands was that they, they were non-contiguous to the, to the United States. Um, but it does establish the United States as a, a something of a, a growing global empire with, with especially its presence in, uh, in East Asia. Um, although we can also point to earlier in the 19th century when the U.S. Navy began establishing small uh, military bases on, on a global basis. So this global vision and, and global ambitions for U.S. elite male, again, white leaders, uh, we can trace to, to very early in U.S. history uh, and I, what I explain in the book is that 1898 really marks the end of this first period of, of U.S. imperial history. Uh, it's after 1898 that we see the United States engaging in, and U.S. leaders engaging in and pursuing new strategies of imperial control that didn't rely on the conquest and colonization of territory, but instead involved uh, more often surreptitious uh, military, economic, and political tools. David Vine is my guest. We're talking about his book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, one example of that shift that you just described of overt military conquest and occupation to other ways of the United States exercising its power and hegemony over other uh, nations and entities can be seen with China. And I wonder if you can describe the great power maneuvers that were going on to do with China and the significance of the United States adopting the open door policy with China in the late 19th century. 
So toward the end of the 19th century, there was growing interest among U.S. and European elites in the, the Chinese market and other markets in East Asia, that, that is the economic markets. And as part of uh, this growing competition for those markets, uh, the European empires and the United States began to uh, look to establish both military bases and, and uh, spheres of economic influence, uh, small enclaves uh, from which they could uh, orchestrate trade and, and, and attempt to dominate uh, these markets. Uh, the open door policy was one pursued not just by the United States, but by European empires, where rather than using overt territorial domination and the conquest of, of territory in China, uh, more surreptitious uh, economic forms of control were pursued uh, to dominate uh, and, and claim as much of the, the Chinese market as possible. Uh, there was uh, very much a, a military uh, role as well, uh, most prominently in the what was known as the Boxer Rebellion when uh, U.S. And, and European empires um, sent troops uh, to China. And there was a, a U.S. military presence in China uh, until World War II. You had mentioned that Franklin Delano Roosevelt had scaled back some of the United States' um, more aggressive stances, but that changed at the start of World War II. Can you tell us what the Destroyers for Bases deal was? Yes, I, I think it's an often overlooked moment that really catapulted the United States U.S. Empire uh, into a, a fully-fledged uh, global empire. At the start of World War II, Britain feared uh, possible invasion by Nazi Germany. Uh, Nazi bombers were, were bombing uh, Britain on a, a nearly daily, daily or nightly basis. And uh, Britain and the United States entered into a deal where the United States provided Britain with 50 World War I-era destroyers, Navy destroyers, uh, in exchange for the right to build military bases on British colonies in the Caribbean and uh, other parts of, of the Americas, actually stretching from Newfoundland uh, to, to British Guiana and the top of, of South America. Uh, and this was, was a significant expansion of the area controlled by the United States. Uh, really, in some ways, it goes back to the Monroe Doctrine. This was, you know, the Monroe Doctrine was the rhetorical uh, statement by, by, by President Monroe to tell the European empires to stay away from the Americas. They basically ignored that, that doctrine. Um, but fast forward more than 100 years, uh, here we have the United States, in, in some ways, taking over the colonies of, uh, of Britain in the Americas. Um, and establishing itself as, as a global power uh, that, that many already recognized it was. Um, this was also, I, th I think, uh, the United States was a, a, essentially a belligerent in World War II long before uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, but the trading of, of the 50 World War I era Navy destroyers for, for the right to build these military bases uh, on Brit in British colonies uh, was just another major step uh, and, and entrance of the United States into World War II. I wonder if you could say a bit more about the importance of military bases, because your book, The United States of War, argues that we really need to understand the infrastructure of militarism to understand how and why the U.S. has been this hegemonic power, that in a sense, some of this infrastructure ends up taking on a life of its own. And you write that looking at the historical record, that the construction of military bases abroad leads to more warfare, not, obviously not simply just because if elites want to start a war, they might want an outpost to do it from, but that actually has a more circular dimension to it. That's right. This is one of the central arguments of, of my book, The United States of War. One sees throughout U.S. history, U.S. leaders building bases abroad. The first bases abroad were on Native American people's lands and territories. So one sees through U.S. history this pattern where U.S. leaders build bases abroad and these bases abroad tend to then enable uh, 
future wars, which tend to lead to the construction of yet new bases abroad, which then lead to new wars, which then lead to new bases, which then lead to new wars in, a, in an ongoing and circular process, uh, self-perpetuating process. So my argument is that, that U.S. bases abroad, foreign military bases, are not just part of the infrastructure of war, don't just make war possible, but they actually make war more likely. Uh, in, in, in some ways, as you sort of alluded to, because they make war too tempting, too easy a policy choice for, for U.S. leaders and, and, and powerful people with influence over U.S. government policy. And one of the things you also note is that frequently where the U.S. has military bases, the U.S. then interferes into the internal politics of that country. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, I, I point especially in the post-World War II period. So during, during World War II, the United States government builds more military bases, more foreign military bases than any government, any people, any country, any empire in world history. Um, literally thousands of, of foreign military bases around the globe uh, on every continent, uh, come, including Antarctica after, after World War II. Uh, and these bases become a, a, a primary feature of U.S. imperialism in the post-World War II period. Now, frequently, especially at the beginning of the, the Cold War, um, allies in the United States welcomed uh, the uh, U.S. military to their land because of fears about the Soviet Union, um, fears that I think it's important to note were often exaggerated and trumped up by uh, U.S. leaders and others uh, who wanted to see uh, the United States maintain hundreds, literally hundreds, in some cases thousands of military bases and, and hundreds of thousands of troops overseas. Over time, these bases become deeply enmeshed in the local, social, and political and economic context of, of host nations, and, and frequently, as I describe, become something of a Trojan horse, that, that they are often portrayed as a kind of gift of security on behalf of the United States, but, but become a powerful imperial tool and lever uh, for U.S. leaders to exert influence and, and power and control over host nations. Just to, over time, just the threat of withdrawing a base actually uh, proves a powerful lever because bases do represent a certain investment in, in funds and in money um, and in jobs for, for locals um, who, who often like bases for, for, that, for that reason. Although virtually everywhere one sees U.S. military bases overseas, one also sees protests because uh, the occupation of, of land by, by foreign militaries tends to lead to tensions as, as, as beloved as, as some um, U.S. troops were, especially in the early days after World War II. Um, over time, one sees growing tensions uh, between host nations and ho locals uh, and the U.S. military. Can you tell us about the interference of the United States in the first election that took place after World War II of the newly established Italian Republic? So Italy was one country where, where the United States actually left. U.S. troops left Italy after World War II, actually redeployed to, to Austria uh, during the, the occupation of, of Austria. Uh, Germany and Japan, of course, were continued, uh, they were occupied on a continual basis after World War II, and, and large numbers of, of U.S. military bases remain in, in Germany and Japan to this day, um, upward of, of 100 base sites in each country. Uh, but in Italy, U.S. troops left, uh, but very soon after, after World War II, there was this key election that, that U.S. Lead, leaders were quite concerned about because of the power of socialist and communist parties in, in Italy and a fear that, that they would uh, align themselves with the Soviet Union. Uh, so this led to a, a major campaign by, by the U.S. government, including both the State Department and CIA, to influence uh, this uh, election and, and swing it to center and center-right parties. Uh, the election did swing to the center and center-right. There's some debate among historians and others about how much influence the United States ultimately had, but it also involved uh, the Vatican, and there was a very significant 
concerted effort to influence the election, sent uh, naval vessels um, off the coast of Italy to, to, as a sign of sort of U.S. power. Um, what followed this election was that the uh, center, center-right uh, government of Italy uh, remained very much a, a one-party uh, dominated uh, democracy uh, through the end of the Cold War. And the center-right party, the Christian Democratic Party, uh, allowed uh, the U.S. military to return to Italy and to establish a, a growing number of bases uh, throughout the country, um, such that uh, after Germany, Japan, and South Korea, the, the greatest concentration of U.S. bases abroad and, and troops uh, can be found in, in Italy to this day. Tell us about Diego Garcia, one of the biggest military bases the U.S. has located in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Most people haven't heard of Diego Garcia. I, I hadn't until uh, I got a very lucky phone call basically 20 years ago, almost to the day. I got a phone call when I was a graduate student uh, studying gentrification and displacement in, in Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn, New York, I got a, a phone call from some lawyers representing a different kind of displaced people. These were the people of Diego Garcia and the surrounding Chagos Islands. It's a group of islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean where the U.S. has a very large Air Force and Navy base that has played key roles in all the U.S. wars in the Middle East, including the the Gulf Wars in, in Iraq, uh, first and second, uh, and the, the war in Afghanistan, among others. The uh, reason I got the phone call was because the, the people of Diego Garcia and the Chagos Islands, uh, called the Chagosians, were suing both the U.S. government and the British government because during the creation of the U.S. military base on Diego Garcia in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the U.S. government, with the help of the British government, which colonized uh, the Chagos Islands and continues to colonize them, uh, the two governments forcibly removed the entire Chagosian people. They are people of African and Indian ancestry, actually quite like uh, our vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, people whose ancestors had lived in the Chagos Islands since the time of the American Revolution. And they were simply rounded up and deported 1,200 miles away to the Western Indian Ocean Islands of Mauritius and the Seychelles, where they were left with no resettlement assistance. Uh, their jobs had been taken, their homes, their land, everything had been taken, the land of their ancestors. And uh, they were dumped there and, and uh, unsurprisingly uh, became deeply impoverished and, and for the most part remain deeply impoverished to the day and remain struggling to get back home. Uh, the lawsuits they filed against the U.S. and British governments have gone through many twists and turns, and they've won some tremendous victories, but the Chagosians are still struggling to go home. And meanwhile, the U.S. government has invested literally billions of dollars in the military base on Diego Garcia, which, again, is, has been key to U.S. wars throughout the Middle East and increasingly has been used to threaten both Iran and China. David Vine is my guest. We'll return with him in just a moment. I keep seeing us everywhere As far as the eye can see It's like a river overflowing We got Muslims, we got Christians we got pagans, we got Jews We got atheists, anarchists, socialists We've even got a liberal or two On the day we all said stop the war On the day we all said stop the war We got kefirs, we got t-shirts, hijabs and rainbow scarves. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with David Vine. He's professor of anthropology at American University. We're discussing his book, The United States of War, 
a global history of America's endless conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. And that's published by UC Press. You can find a link to it on our website, againstthegrain.org. So David, during the period of the Cold War, you argue that the U.S. military industrial complex took on a life of its own, shaping U.S. policy choices. Can you describe that for us and also the term where it comes from, the U.S. military industrial congressional complex? We believe that President Eisenhower originally uh, termed what, what's often referred to as the military-industrial complex, the military-industrial-congressional complex. And that's important because members of Congress play a key role in this entrenched system of power, a system of power that President Eisenhower warned us about as he was leaving office, uh, turning over the presidency to President Kennedy. And I think if he saw the military industrial congressional complex today, it would be beyond his worst nightmares. And over the period of the entire so-called Cold War, which of course it's important to point out wasn't cold for millions of people who of course died during the proxy wars that, that made up the, the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, the military industrial congressional complex grew in, in, in power. And, in the size of the budgets that were dedicated to uh, buying weaponry and, and funding and fueling a military, uh, and, and in terms of the, the, the depth of influence of military uh, contractors, arms manufacturers, over policymaking uh, via their control over members of Congress through in the form of uh, campaign contributions and lobbying. Um, so that is, again, part of why it's important to see the role of, of members of Congress uh, in this entrenched system that, that has come to, to control uh, U.S. foreign policy making in profound ways. And, and such that I, I, and part of what I explain in the book is that I think uh, we can see since 2001 uh, an even greater uh, depth of, of power and influence that the military-industrial congressional complex has, has come to assume in, in U.S. life. And my, my greatest fear in this moment is that even as uh, the United States withdraws from the war in Afghanistan, that we're going to keep fighting. And I think we are, we are at something of a, a turning point where the United States and U.S. citizens really have a, a choice about whether we're going to continue this system of, of endless war, uh, a system that, that is undergirded by the military-industrial-congressional complex, a uh, system of a perpetual war, or whether we're going to choose another path. And I think uh, to choose another path, we're going to have to significantly uh, roll back the power of the military industrial congressional complex because if it's up to, to the, 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 the uh, power elite of the military industrial congressional complex, we'll just keep on fighting. And you can see signs of gearing up for, for new fights. And then most frighteningly of all is the talk of a, a war with China, uh, which should be incomprehensible, I think, to anyone. Uh, the idea that the two wealthiest countries on Earth, uh, two nuclear-armed powers could uh, come into conflict in any kind of a military clash uh, should, be, should be beyond our comprehension because of the possibility that this would spiral out of control and uh, possibly become a, a nuclear conflict that would take the lives of millions upon millions of people and make the, the horrific catastrophe of the, of the last 20 years of war uh, look, look small. I'd like to talk to you more about that, about the period that we're living through and the withdrawal of the United States from Afghanistan. But staying for a moment more with the question of the U.S. military industrial congressional complex and the role of private industry in this tale, I wanted to ask you about something backing up to the period actually before World War II that took place spearheaded by Pan American Airways, developing 48 airfields in Latin America. Can you tell us about that and its importance for the U.S. military? Yeah, this is a little known piece of World War II history where the Pan American Airways, one of the major U.S. air carriers at the time, no longer exists, um, but at the time it was one of the most powerful U.S. commercial aircraft carriers built a, a series of, of, of runways and 
airports throughout the Americas that did not only have commercial uh, interests in mind. Uh, Pan, Pan American Airways was interested in, in its commercial future and in dominating the post-war commercial aircraft industry and business. Uh, but they were also doing this on behalf of, of the U.S. military. These were uh, airfields and airports that, that had a, a dual military and uh, civilian uh, use. Um, and uh, Pan Am basically carried it out on, on, a, on, on a covert basis uh, for the, the U.S. military, and it was a way to, to effectively build kinds of, of U.S. military installations throughout the Americas uh, to protect against any possible Axis invasion. David Vine is my guest. We're talking about his book, The United States of War. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So, David, you argue in the United States of War, and you've been arguing during this interview that the infrastructure that has been put in place over centuries, in fact, but particularly over the last century, by the United States, these military bases around the world have had a logic of their own which has perpetuated more war making. And under George W. Bush, there was a shift in the configuration of U.S. bases around the world. Can you tell us about the shift that took place under George W. Bush and how that boom in base building compares to the earlier period of enormous base building that you know, was heretofore unprecedented following World War II? Yeah, so again, I, I argue that the, that the U.S. empire, U.S. imperialism has been defined by foreign overseas military bases in the post-World War II period. The, the number of bases and their positioning shifted uh, a bit through the so-called Cold War. Uh, the numbers going up and down, especially up with the wars in Korea and Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, um, and reducing after those wars. Uh, but a permanent infrastructure of, of U.S. bases remained around the world, uh, with growing numbers of bases in the Middle East in particular after 1979 and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the, the uh, revolution in Iran. After the Cold War, uh, there were significant base closures. About 60% of U.S. overseas bases closed. But again, a, a very significant infrastructure of bases remained in place, still the largest almost certainly in world history of any people, country, or, or empire. Uh, so we did see both Presidents George H.W. Bush and President Clinton closed significant numbers of bases, and then President George W. Bush as well, um, to the surprise of some, closed some significant number of bases, especially in, in Europe. Uh, but at the same time, there was, as you mentioned, uh, a, a massive base building enterprise in the Middle East as part of the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, we see um, new bases popping up throughout the Middle East with billions of dollars invested in new permanent infra infrastructure. The U.S. has, has left all its bases in, in Afghanistan now um, and almost all its bases in, in Iraq, but a, a very significant infrastructure of bases remains uh, in, in countries throughout the Middle East to this day. How would you characterize what took place after September 11th? Because you've been arguing that it would be wrong for us to think that a period of endless war just started then. But at the same time, you also argue that something significant did happen from that period to now. Can you tell us how you understand it? Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's important to see both the continuities with earlier periods in U.S. history and, and what's new. I, I, I describe this as a period of, of hyper-imperialism, um, and it has been marked by an unprecedented uh, power uh, for the military-industrial congressional complex with budgets that uh, exceed the heights of, of the so-called Cold War when the United States had another imperial competitor in the form of the Soviet Union that was an existential threat. The war on terror has brought trillions of dollars in Pentagon investments. Uh, since 2001, the United States, U.S. taxpayers, have invested $14 trillion, $14 trillion with a T, in the Pentagon. So that's about $8 trillion 
already spent or obligated uh, for the wars themselves, but we have to pay attention to the, the quote-unquote regular U.S. military budgets uh, that, that went alongside that. In total, $14 trillion has been poured into the U.S. military since 2001. A recent report by the Cost of War Project shows us that uh, between one-third and one-half uh, of that funding, one-third and between one-third and one-half of the $14 trillion has gone to military contractors. Again, showing us how the military industrial congressional complex has, has grown in this period since 2001 and, and to the benefit of the industrial part of the military industrial congressional complex, as well as to the benefit of, of politicians. But uh, the, the arms manufacturers, the military contractors have seen their profits and stock prices boom in the period since 2001. War has been very good for them. Meanwhile, of course, uh, war has been horrific for uh, the people, especially where the wars have been fought. Uh, people pay, in the U.S. media, we hear sometimes about uh, U.S. military personnel who've died. There have been about 15,000 U.S. military personnel who've died in the post-9-11 wars. Uh, of course, hundreds of thousands have come back injured with traumatic brain injuries, PTSD, other uh, injuries, both visible and invisible. Uh, but I'm sad to say this pales in comparison to the tens of millions of injur injuries uh, in the war zones in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Libya, Syria, and beyond. Uh, tens of millions of injuries, 4.5 million people dead in these U.S.-led wars, uh, by my count, 4.5 million dead. Uh, 38 million displaced in the eight most violent wars the U.S. military has waged since 9-11. Uh, these, are, these are minimums. Um, I, I think it's not widely recognized, but, but the post-9-11 wars, the war on terror, this is our Vietnam for those of us who grew up in the post-Vietnam War era. Uh, the scale of death and destruction uh, is quite comparable to the death and destruction that was visited upon uh, the people of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And I, I think uh, it really um, behooves us to, to grapple with the damage and destruction that our wars have brought to others. Uh, meanwhile, they've, of course, brought terrible destruction to us as well, U.S. citizens, taxpayers beginning with $8 trillion invested in these wars. I think we have to think about how else we could have invested $8 trillion with a T, starting with, you know, pandemic preparedness. How many hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved if we had invested a tiny fraction of that $8 trillion in pandemic preparedness, uh, let alone a system of universal health care. Uh, with $8 trillion, we easily could have built a, a green energy infrastructure to combat global warming, climate change, free college, uh, you know, the homelessness that, that we see all around us, the people sleeping on the streets. This simply doesn't have to be this way. And we need only look at the $8 trillion with a T that the United States has invested in war since 2001. How do you read the U.S. pullout from Afghanistan? Do you think it signifies the end of an era or is this just one episode in something where the continuities are stronger than the ruptures? I think it's important to recognize that the withdrawal from Afghanistan is significant. Uh, it's important that the, and, 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 and I commend President Biden for uh, withdrawing uh, U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Uh, this is a, a war that or U.S. participation in the war should have been ended long ago. The war itself should never have happened. There was never a reason to invade Afghanistan to overthrow the Taliban. Uh, the perpetrators of the attacks of 9-11 could have been uh, pursued through criminal justice means, um, as well as intelligence gathering and, and other tools. There was never a reason uh, to use war as a response to the attacks of 9-11, and, and, and using war has been a disaster. It's been a disaster, again, for the United States. It's been a disaster uh, for the people of Afghanistan and, and peoples around the world. Um, that said, there are things we have to look out for. Uh, the Biden administration has signaled that it plans to remain militarily involved 
in the war in Afghanistan uh, the, with what it calls over the horizon capabilities, which largely means uh, the ability to, to strike, to attack, um, to assassinate with drones and with other forms of, of bombing from the air, uh, enabled by this huge infrastructure of, of military bases in the Middle East that I've, I've referred to. Uh, so without a, a much more profound withdrawal from bases, especially in the Middle East, but from other parts of the world as well, uh, we will see a mere continuation of, of long-standing U.S. policy uh, and of, of long-standing war-making. Uh, it is a step uh, to, to withdraw from Afghanistan, but uh, we have a long way to go to really uh, divert uh, the United States from our current path and stop the fighting. I, I think, quite simply, we, we have to stop fighting. Um, and if we don't, we're going to get into even more catastrophic wars that will see the United States um, in even more dire straits, either through bankruptcy or uh, because of the catastrophic effects of a, a future war. You mentioned possible war with China, and certainly we've seen the fanning of, of flames of a new Cold War there. Which leads me to ask your question, and I'll end with this one, about resistance to U.S. imperialism and hegemony, including by the anti-war movements in the United States. When you look at the past century or even the recent past, to what degree has the actions of people going out into the streets and saying we don't want these wars influenced what the U.S. has or has not been able to do? So we see throughout history resistance to U.S. wars, resistance within the U.S. military at times, uh, resistance by by regular folks. Uh, it's you know many of the, the your listeners and people throughout the Bay Area, of course, were among the most active in opposing the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I think it's important to recognize that these movements were not failures. Often they're portrayed that way. Um, and in some ways, it, it, you know, it makes me emotional and, and upset that, that they are portrayed that way. It's important to see the way in which the protests against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq turned U.S. public opinion against the wars more rapidly than I think in any wars in U.S. history, uh, such that we're, we're in a, a moment, and this has really been true since the end of the, the George W. Bush administration, uh, majority of the U.S. populace does not support war as a policy choice, does not su support l large scale ground invasions of other other countries, has wanted the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to end long ago. Um, and, and this is significant. It should be recognized as such and should be recognized as, as, as a, a kind of victory of uh, the anti-war protests uh, in, in, in the Bush administration against the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but it's important to see that throughout U.S. history, there has been this uh, opposition to wars, uh, that it reminds us that, that no war is inevitable, uh, that none of the wars in the past are inevitable, no war in the future is inevitable, and that people have power and control over, um, over U.S foreign policy making and over, over the decision to go to war. Now, there are powerful corporations, military industrial congressional complex, powerful leaders who have disproportionate control over U.S. war making. And we need to democratize further U.S. foreign policy making to ensure that, that, it, that it reflects the interests of, and well-being of, of, of people rather than the, the bank accounts and bottom lines of corporations. Um, but so there's a, there's a long way to go. I don't want to underestimate the challenges in front of us, uh, but people need to see the, the, the ability to, to, to oppose war. And I think increasingly, what my mind really has to be a priority is linking uh, anti-war movements with other movements, uh, beginning with the, the money, beginning with the $8 trillion invested in the post 9-11 wars, the $14 trillion total that's been invested in the military since 2001. Again, that, that's money that, that could have gone to folks to combat homelessness, um, to build affordable housing, to develop a universal healthcare system, uh, to improve our public schools, to provide free college education, to build a green infrastructure. Uh, the money is there, it's always been there. So I think a major priority is to link the anti-war movement 
the anti-militarist movement. Um, we're seeing linkages with the, the militarization of the police um, and other movements uh, that have been so starved of, of funding that, again, was always there. Uh, and uh, this, I think, has to be a priority if we're going to, to, to choose another course for the United States of America to move away from war and to a country that, you know, as my book says, is, is the United States of peace rather than a United States of war. David Vine, thank you so much. Sasha, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. David Vine is the author of The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. That's published by UC Press. His other books include Based Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. He's professor of anthropology at American University. And you've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.